Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help you get unstuck so you can do what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner Khan. Find yourself, live yourself, give yourself. Today on episode 504 of Smashing the Plateau, I'm here with Ed Squire, the founder of Me Too What Now. I'm going to ask Ed how survivors of childhood sexual abuse can recover and what the implications are for their business and personal lives. Find out more about Ed along with all of our previous episodes at smashingtheplateau.com. Now, before we get into our discussion, I want to tell you a little bit about our friends at SiteHub. If you want to use cutting-edge digital thinking combined with top-notch industry expertise to build your website, contact SiteHub at www.yoursitehub.com. Now let's welcome Ed Squire. For 20 years, Ed was a top-tier business consultant for Fortune 500 and global companies in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. But in 2016, he was on disability with PTSD, anxiety, and depression. In 2012, Ed began speaking openly about the childhood sexual abuse he suffered and how it was affecting him. This set off a chain of events that changed everything. Last May, Ed started a nonprofit called Me Too What Now to raise awareness about childhood sexual abuse and mental illness, but he wanted to be mainstream and contemporary. So he developed a niche for creating videos and documentaries that are capturing the attention of his target audience and other influencers. Ed, welcome to the show. David, thank you very much for having me. Ed, clearly from what I've just read, you have had lots of success in your life and also hit some major, major roadblocks. What caused you to want to become public about these roadblocks? Well, David, I think, um, you know, that's a, it's a complicated question simply because it comes from, you know, I, I realized everything stemmed from the abuse that I suffered as a child. So all of my professional life as I encountered the typical uh, challenges we all face in our in our careers. I, I came to realize that they were greater and more. They were insurmountable, and I was finding myself uh, having real challenges and difficulty maintaining the level of expertise and providing the services that I did to my clients. And I had to come to a full stop and do a reassessment on my life and try to get answers to what was happening. I originally thought. Maybe I'm having a midlife crisis or, uh, you know, maybe I just need to take a break and I'm stressed out. And I just came to find out through therapy and uh, pursuing this challenge in my life that everything stemmed back to my childhood sexual abuse. And so it was uh, shocking, to say the least. And it uh, changed the course of everything that uh, I was working towards, not only on on the outside as far as my career, but inside my my heart and my mind as far as, you know, what am I doing and why am I doing what I'm doing? Right. Did you decide that you just didn't want to do the kind of consulting that you were doing, the business consulting? Uh, I think, yes, I would have to say yes to that because, uh, you know, I did that for, uh, you know, over over 15 years and that involved a lot of travel. You know, like I see in my introduction there, um, I spent a lot of time in the United States and Canada and Europe. So it was uh, a lot of travel and it was a very much a high stress environment working at the uh, C level of management in these, uh, in these uh, corporations 
you know, you really need to be on your game and uh, you need to be a sharp thinker. And uh, I just, I just found that grind was, wasn't really what I wanted to do. And, you know, I found after a lot of soul searching, when I, uh, you know, took time off that, uh, you know, what was I really looking for? Was it, was it the money? Was it the career? Did, what, what was I enjoying about it? Like, why exactly was I doing what I was doing? And I, I think, for myself and maybe I don't know for for other people, we pursue our careers and we we choose the doors that open before us and 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 maybe others we don't. And for me, it was I was really driven by the fact that it was uh, it was fun in the beginning and it made a lot of money. But when I sat down and reassessed my life, is is fun and money really what I'm all about? And so I decided I like the type of work. I really enjoy the work, but do I do I want to do it for money and do I want to do it for the for the the fun? Do I want to continue in that level of stress? And the answer was no. So then I was faced with, well, what do I do now? Right. And was there a connection between that soul searching and your childhood ex- experiences? Without question, without question, I I realized that over the decades, because uh, I'm uh, in my 50s now, and uh, I was sexually abused from age four until about 10 by three different men. I, I realized that uh, psychologically, the impact that that has on your growth and on your like mental mental growth and your maturity and your your mores and your values are severely impacted. And not much is taught about that. We don't hear much about that. You have to, you know, you, I mean, I've got this information over during the course of therapy and then I could see how my life was reflecting that the abuses that I had suffered and then I, I had to think well now how do I how do I change this mm. so how how did it impact what you were doing as a consultant so I, one of the biggest things was um, was performance orientation as they call it right a, a desire to want to be uh, received to be acknowledged to be understood and accepted as as whatever I wanted to project. So I wanted to I wanted people to see me as a professional high end consultant that made mo- a lot of money and I worked at this certain level. So everything was everything was geared around performance orientation as opposed to a healthy approach would be you know I I like to do this for myself. I enjoy the the personal growth and the challenges. I enjoy serving other organizations and providing the best possible solutions for them. And so that's a healthy uh, way to approach it, as opposed to the most exciting thing for me was, you know, when my dad, for example, and this is a core thing, because he was also sexually abused by one of the same men that sexually abused me, which was his uh, stepfather. Uh, I always wanted my dad to approve of me and to and to to see me as a successful man, because internally, both of us never felt that way. We felt very wounded and we were all, both of us were always looking for attention and, and performance. So you can see how it's a, it's a very, it's a twisty, deeply ingrained, psychologically ingrained uh, pattern of thinking that came out and um, was a, the, the fruit of the, the work that I did in my, in my career. And now that you're focusing on helping others through your your new organization, helping others deal with with these same kinds of uh, patterns and issues. What do you see is commonality among 
the population you serve? Well, the, the commonalities are are so crystal clear, it's it's mind-boggling. The trouble is for survivors to get to the point where they can recognize and accept that that's what, what's happening. And I began to ask myself near the end of my career, you know, why do I behave the way I behave? Why am I stressed about this? Why do I act this way? And, you know, we all we all do that to to some degree, self-introspection and 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 we evaluate ourselves. But when it's when it's debilitating to the point of where you lack an a solid internal identity of knowing who you are yourself, that is one of the key uh, identifiers. And in my nonprofit, my tagline is find yourself, live yourself, give yourself. And those are reflect the five steps to recovering from trauma. But I've put it in my own words in, in three steps. And the first step is coming to the place where you understand that you don't really know who you are. You, you're not authentic in understanding your own, your own being. So uh, that, is, that is one of the top identifiers of that. So is performance orientation. So is codependency and uh, um, feeling uh, ashamed and, and fearful. Uh, so it's uh, I know I would say those are, those are some of the top symptoms of uh, of it, and you have unstable relationships as well because you can't you can't be intimate with somebody because you're afraid to let them into your life. And and again, we we all experience this to some degree, but when it's debilitating to the point of where it's affecting you and affecting people around you, that's when it becomes a problem. And then addictions is another another piece of it as well, whether it could be drug addiction or alcohol addiction or sex addiction, or it could be even addiction to your work, but it's an unhealthy attachment to uh, an activity that is, is, again, debilitating and affecting you in a negative way and the people around you. So for, for someone who recognizes these signs, some of the things you just mentioned, codependency, shamefulness, fearfulness unstable relationships, unhealthy attachments. What are the steps to recovery? See, now that's that's what got me going with with my nonprofit. You know, the, the steps to recovery are, you know, first identifying and understanding that, that you have a problem. Then you go through a, a period of grief and loss of, uh, you know, accepting that this has happened to you and you, you may have not had the life that you you would have had otherwise, and then you begin to deal with the mental health issues, and, and these are the steps. But the problem for me in that was it's great to know those steps. You know, with the 60 to 70 million survivors of childhood sexual abuse in the United States alone, and the 10 to 12 million estimated survivors in Canada, we're looking at an, an audience of about 80 million people. And we're not seeing an overflow of people that are, you know, wow, I, I see what my problem is now. I, I understand. Oh, now I now I get it. And now I have the answers. What are the steps to getting better? Because the whole topic is so shameful that people do their best like I did to ignore it as long as they can and think they're okay, which is why. You know, in in which is a big controversy today is people who don't understand this, they wonder why. We get to later in life to say something. 
like uh, Dr. Ford and the Brett Kavanaugh case and like the the two boys that were abused by Michael Jackson and they did this documentary and so many so many things swirl around that as far as the media is concerned as to the motive behind why they did what they did. Now we nobody knows the motive of what people are really doing, but I can say from experience as a survivor, I understand the triggers that take place later on in life that that bring these things to the surface and you realize, hey, I do have a problem. And it, and it will cause you to lie all your life about things. So the fact that they, you know, you, you can lie under, under, under oath and then change your story is not surprising to me. So, you know, the steps, you know, in, in the beginning, you know, to answer your question are is just coming to the realization that I have a problem. And then moving through the through the five stages of of recovery for 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 trauma, like I was briefly mentioning, the problem is is how do you get the attention of these sixty to eighty million people to come to the place where they realize they have a problem, or if they do have a problem, how do you reach them? Because typically people aren't going to go, well, you know, I now I got the, all the dots connected. Let me proceed into getting better. That doesn't happen because it's it's so shameful, and that's really what caused me to uh, come up with the idea for me to what now and the approach that I have is finding a way to reach those people that are typically not going to reach out for help. They know they have a problem. They're searching online. They're they're ashamed and they're embarrassed. And I, I want to I want to reach those people through 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 this nonprofit and then help them get into the next steps of actually what do they do from a from a clinical and from a you know professional mental health perspective to moving forward because I don't have that expertise. So Ed, how are you reaching people? I, I found out that um you know, I, I've been studying social media for the past couple of years, and and there was no question in my mind that social media was was the place to to go, because if you are in this situation, you're not going to ask your neighbor or your wife or your best friend over a couple of beers, hey, I was sexually abused, you know, I'm having problems, what should I do? People are going to search online in the privacy of their own homes or on their phones or on their laptops, and they're gonna they're gonna start looking for for information. You know, I found for myself when I began to do that, there were two types of of content that were available. And it was whether it was provided through another survivor online, uh, through their website or on a YouTube channel or something or Facebook, or it was an actual advocacy group or organization. There was either content that you would read that explained these things, or they had uh, videos that were available, which for the most part, the content was survivors telling their stories. Or it was a professional explaining, you know, here's how you need to recover. And I thought to myself, because it didn't grab my attention that much, I thought, well, is it is it not possible to create some type of video content? Because video is the fastest growing, I mean, the, the speed that video is growing on the internet is absolutely mind-boggling. And I thought, you know, people are more captivated by video than they are by reading something. So when I began to research YouTube, I asked myself the question, how do these YouTube influencers have the massive followings that they do? And there's no commonality as to the topic that they that they speak on or the type of person that they are or the experience that they have. And so if you could be a nice guy and have a million followers, or you could be a, a total jerk and have a million followers, what's the commonality? How does it work? And I found out that it's not just making a good video or being exciting or having a great personality. 
the key was, it was authenticity mm-hmm. right? and being genuine. If you could be authentic and genuine on camera, people will follow you. And then I thought, how the heck could you do that on this topic? Because I don't find it anywhere on the internet, very, very little. And so I began to develop a plan and strategy and experimenting with just my, how can I do that? And that's been the core of, of Me Too What Now. And how's it going so far? So I just wrapped up my first year. Uh, I'm just actually finishing up my my uh, taxes for my first fiscal year. And I focused on developing a YouTube channel, but supported and, and driven by other platforms like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook uh, page, and uh, driving to and, and my website, all driving towards YouTube. And in my first year, uh, I have over 12,000 minutes of views. I have over 4,700 individual unique views and 106 subscribers, and I have 37 videos that average two and a half minutes piece. So from a from a data perspective, now this is where I get to use the expertise from my career, which is what I'm finding so fulfilling with the, the nonprofit, is data and metrics are important. You can't just, you know, hey, put out a video and how many views did you get or how many minutes are people watching it? You, if you really want to grow, all these other YouTube influencers, they take advantage of the data that's provided by, by YouTube and data from other platforms that's provided as well. And, you know, you want to make sure you have a high viewing ratio. My, my videos are getting, uh, on average, 60% uh, watch time, which means no matter how long the video is, people are watching 60% of it, which may sound kind of bad, but in the world of YouTube, that, that metric is very high. If you have between 40 and 60% of watch time on a video, that's a good that's a good, you know, place to be. So I'm on the high end of uh, you know what was considered a good, you know, producing good content. So I, I've been astonished to see that kind of growth in the first year that I've done it, having never made a video before or been been involved with YouTube. So I'm I'm really excited about the next year because there's a lot of excitement about what I'm doing. There's a lot of anticipation about where I'm going. And the the view time and the watch time continues to consistently and, and strongly grow on an upward path. That's really exciting. The, Ed, once people become aware of, of your message, how does your nonprofit help them? That's a, another good question, too, because typically, what and this is what other nonprofits and, and general public are still trying to figure out about what I'm doing in, in, in some cases. But I look at it, it's like the iPhone. When the iPhone first came out, you know, not everybody knew what it was. When something is new and you haven't seen it before, you may not see the value immediately. But there are certain people that are the target of what that product or service is created for that, that they're going to get it and they're going to understand and, and they're going to consume it. And so I'm not so concerned about what other people are thinking about, you know, what I should do that is typical with other nonprofits. I'm concerned with what I'm doing and am I getting the results with my target audience? And what I mean by that is most nonprofits and other survivors that are producing content, they create, uh, they have like workshops, they have books that are available, they have courses, they have the typical, you know, you can have your hands on something to, to learn from. Now, those kinds of things are are in production for me. I'm only in my first year, so I had to decide what is going to be the the main thing that I focus on. Am I going to develop content typically that people are are doing, or am I going to create captivating videos that are going to draw 
my audience in. And my audience is survivors. It's not other advocacy groups and it's not other people. I'm not competing with anybody. It's how do I get people to continually return to my channel while I'm in recovery myself? So like I haven't arrived. So I'm living in an authentic moment when I create all my videos and I've created a variety of content that is very unique. And that's that's the main source of, of my uh, service offerings, if you want to call it that, is just getting people to revisit. So when you visit my channel, you'll see a combination of I do interview other survivors. I do uh, uh, blooper reels. So when I go to create a video and it doesn't work out, I'll, I'll put the funny pieces together, put some funky music to it. And, and it's, it's funny. It's, really, it's, it's entertaining. And then I'll also interview other um, mental health care professionals and other nonprofits. And you'll find um, there's a couple of documentary clips that I have for two documentaries that I'm working on. And actually, I have a third one as well. So there's this variety of content that you don't find any, anywhere else, that, that I couldn't find anywhere else online, that is drawing people back. So the goal is to get people to consume this content and go, wow, this guy is, he's working through his own issues. He's doing it online and they're enjoying my content. And then the goal is to get them to take that step in talking to somebody. Because really, that's the first thing that really needs to happen is to talk. And as simple as that sounds, and as non-monetizing as that is, that is the goal of what I'm trying to do, to get them to talk to someone that they trust and feel safe with. And and, and that will begin the their, their path to healing. On my website and in my videos, I talk about you know, other uh, resources that they can uh, uh, get their hands on, whether it's through books or other websites and other support groups and, and, and begin to pass on the next steps of their of their progress to into it like a formal, you know, getting into those five steps of recovery to get their to get their health and life back. So I, I'm like a, this go between I'm meeting a gap, I think, that's in the that's in the marketplace that that doesn't readily exists. It's not readily available where I'm just there as a survivor myself and I'm attracting people and then informing them on what I did and what they need to do to to move forward in their lives. Right. Uh, primarily through awareness and content. Correct. Yeah. Ed, if someone wants to learn more about what you're doing and wants to check out any of the content that you have created, where would they go? Well, I would say that the first place would be to to just go. I mean, although YouTube is my my main platform, I think it's good to go to my website, which is uh, me too what now dot com, and uh, it's 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 very simple. It's I'm, I'm uh, you know everything is very small for me, so there's nothing nothing super fancy, but it'll explain what I'm doing, how I did it. It'll talk about um, uh, the different types of content that I have. And, uh, you know, I'm, it's a nonprofit. So if you want to donate, that would be wonderful and uh, how people are responding. And then there's it'll link you out to my YouTube channel. And um, that would be the best. You can also go straight to my YouTube channel as well. And if you go to YouTube and uh, just, you know, uh, search with me to what now all one word with no spaces or even my name, Ed Squire, you'll you'll find my channel easily. But those are the two main are the two main sources, my website and my YouTube channel. I recommend. It sounds great. Well, Ed, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Smashing the Plateau and share your experiences, your insights, and um, and provide some resources for lots, lots of people, as you just described, in the U.S., Canada, and around the world. My guest today has been Ed Squire, the founder of Me Too What Now. Thank you again, Ed, for joining us. 
David, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mention on the show. Today we learned how survivors of childhood sexual abuse can recover and how Ed is developing his not-for-profit to serve survivors. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues to help them smash the plateau. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you help us bring Smashing the Plateau to you for free. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.